Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Uh, today is Friday, October 21st, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Uh, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have a full crew today. Doug, Erica, Tiffany, Gabby, and Elliot. Hey, everybody. Hello. 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 Hi. All right. So today, uh, we're going to be doing a Connecting the Dots show. We're talking about smart drugs in a dumb world, along with a number of other things. Uh, and we're going to connect the dots about some recent news in the, the world of health and wellness. Um, talking about uh, uh, students um, using apps that claim to make them smarter, uh, drugs that claim to make them smarter, um, you know, treatments and behavioral uh, attitudes that, that claim to make them feel better. Um, we'll be talking about emotional agility. Um, we'll be talking about uh, glycine and glyphosate. Uh, so maybe a little bit uh, uh, jumping around, but we'll try to connect the dots between these various topics and uh, just have a discussion around it. So okay. I think uh, maybe a good place to start off is like the, the emotional stability topic. Um, give us a foundation for what, what the other stuff that we're talking about today. Um, I like this one of our articles. The uh, uh, professor explains uh, the increase of precious snowflakes, <laughs> citing narcissism and overnurturing. Um, there is uh, Howard Schwartz, professor emeritus at Oakland University, uh, has studied the psychology underlying political correctness, and he wrote a new book called "Political Correctness and the Destruction of the Social Order," chronicling the rise of the pristine self. Um, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer, I think, but it's uh, interesting nonetheless. He said the uh, the oversensitivity of individuals today, including political correctness and microaggressions, all stem from this idea that people operating under the notion of the pristine self view you as evil because you're showing them something other than love. <laughs> so it's almost like a subtle return of the the hippie ideology, maybe. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I don't think it's uh, uh, something other than love. It can be like indifference, like whatever. You know? <laughs> and people can be offended sure. by that. Yes, that's pretty bad. <laughs> if you're not giving them your full attention and, uh, uh, you know. Not acknowledging their specialness. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, he yeah, says they, in the article. Oh, no, he, he just said, um, people now experience the entire world as a form of bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, that, <laughs> he, yeah, he's, he's come up with this idea of the, the pristine self, which is basically um, a self that is touched by nothing but love, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's that, basically, um, if a person has like this this expectation, if they've built their sense of themselves around the premise that nothing can touch them but love, then when they come into contact with something that they don't deem as <laughs> love, then um, he, he states that it blows the entire structure apart. <laughs> so essentially, um, they, they don't live in the real world, but they live in this fantasy land that's been constructed... Um, by, by the the educators and by the parents. Yeah, it sounds like narcissism. Yeah, mm. basically. Yeah. Totally. It it's sounds a, like a societal a version of love and light. Yeah. Totally. Yes. I'm a precious snowflake. 
it's just it's kind of like it, it's just such a toxic perspective to have and completely denies the reality that we live in like the idea that you kind of have the right to go through your life without encountering anything slightly um off from your perspective of how things should be is completely narcissistic yeah these people are you know they will face up some pretty tough lessons like the book, uh, The Road Less Traveled starts, you know, life is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, so. it's exactly like that. Like they're trying to get to like a place where life isn't difficult, where everything is very easy, where nobody's ever offended. Everybody, you know, they, they create these quote unquote safe spaces where there's no, nothing could possibly offend anyone. And it's like the, the, the idea of everybody kind of like projecting out onto everybody else how, you know, they have to conform to your perception of, of the world and, and how things should work. It's Sounds like it starts in childhood. You know, that's what they're doing. The helicopter parenting is mm. yeah. shielding children from any real danger and then creating this fantasy and you would think by the time you get into college that, okay, now it's the real world. I got to wake up and face what's out there and it sounds like from this article that colleges are just kind of con- perpetuating that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Erica it's what is helicopter yeah. uh, parenting because oh. oh, I hear that term that a lot and I don't know exactly how it's how it's defined overprotecting parents yeah the mm. constant um, monitoring and play dates and scheduling and you know, safe environments and don't mm. let your kids run around and play in the park. And, you know, not that being overly involved in school is a bad thing, but, you know, if the teacher brings up controversial topics, the parents right there to, you know, disagree and mm. um, basically fighting battles for the child that children mm. need to learn to fight for themselves. It's almost like what we shared in the book uh, discussion of the gift of fear is not letting children experience real world you know dangers mm-hmm. in any for sort more, of a way or more than protectionism is like making children overly dependent on the system which mm-hmm. is completely mm-hmm. a pathological system yeah i had an experience with that a number of years ago i taught a uh, a summer class for high school students um that was in uh, graphic design and animation and we had a movie day, so it was a week-long class. And for the movie day, I showed B for Vendetta because mm-hmm. I thought it would be fun, but also, like, we were looking at the special effects and stuff like that, but I was like, this will be a fun one to show. I got ripped a new one by the parents <laughs> because one of the students complained that it was too violent. Now, it is a violent film, but these are high school, like, sophomores and seniors, you know, and it was like, I don't know, there's a line. I don't really feel like I overstepped my boundaries, but they were not happy about that. And it, that was an example to me of like, I don't know, I guess. Uh, you, what you did they say? That, oh, they just, you know, that I was exposing their children to violence. And I'm like, <sighs> you, know, you know, they're watching worse stuff. than For sure. I'm pretty sure that's or a PG-13 games. movie, isn't it? Or a parental guidance movie? Yeah. So they were all old enough to see it, in other words. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. It reminds me of the idea of like uh, triggering, which I think is mm-hmm. a fine line um, because, for instance, say somebody has been raped in the past and they see in the film 
like a rape scene. And I completely understand that that is a highly traumatic event and that could be a trigger for them to have a, a panic attack or some kind of a, a flashback. That makes complete sense to me. But the idea that you were like pushed once in high school and you fell on your back and then somebody shows you a little bit of aggression in like the store and that's a trigger for you to flash back to that. You know, it's like there, there's this line between the legitimate aspect of mental and emotional triggering and people taking advantage of it. And that's what the snowflake thing kind of reminds me of is people are like uh, overemphasizing and taking too much advantage of their emotional sensitivity. There's no, there's no stability there. There's no like place to deal with the hardships that life throws at you. Mm. Yes. You know, guys, well, uh, no, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) It's just complete internal consideration. Like all they care about is their own comfort and nowhere is it mentioned like how you should behave towards you know, your peers or whatever. It's just as long as, you know, nobody hurts your feelings and everything's good. But it's just so generic about how they lay it out. Like, there's nothing in there about, like, what what you need to do to be kind to other people and res- uh, respect people and expect it in return. It's just like, oh, I'm just so precious, you know, don't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was going to say actually something similar. It reminds <laughs> me of the concept of hysterization from neurology mm-hmm. where Andrew Lobachevsky explains that in good times for a society, uh, well, they are like superficial, they have a superficial understanding of psychology, mm-hmm. their happiness depends on the exploitation and suffering of other people, other nations, and uh, it is like characterized by extreme narcissism, like avoidance of any data that will rock the boat or that will burst the bubble, you know, and, you know, just basically be self-focused and consume and, you know, and be as interested in what matters, you know. Yeah. I I don't know. I wonder, where do you guys think this is going? Do you think it'll ever level out or is it just going to keep getting more, more intense to the point where you just can't say anything? I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I don't know if, if any of our listeners have ever been involved in like a grad school environment where as part of the learning process, you're told that you're a complete piece of shit. Pardon my French. You know, really? <laughs> yeah. What program did you go to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, that, uh, that, that you won't be able to, my, my point is like a critical feedback that you'll never be able to receive any kind of critical feedback for anything that you do. And I feel like this is going to overall, maybe not across the board, but um, certainly in some cases damage the, uh, the learning process because you have to be uh, in order to learn, you have to be embarrassed at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to feel like you failed at some point. Uh, you You have to feel those negative feelings in order to get the motivation to learn and grow. Yeah, brain pain will be more uncomfortable. It actually makes, it reminds me of um, an article I read a while ago, and I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me, but it was talking about how um, some schools have stopped actually giving grades to students because, you know, it'll make the, you know, if a kid actually fails or or does poorly, they're going to feel bad. And they were taking any kind of competitive sport out because the kids on the losing team might feel bad. Or... 
or they didn't want the the family to clap or cheer when you walked across the stage when you graduated because it might make other people feel bad. <laughs> well, it's like we were talking about last week too. The way that that one school abolished hugging because they thought you know some people might be uncomfortable with hugs, so and they don't want anybody hugging because then they might feel singled out because they don't want to hug, and that they oh, had God. to stop. They had to stop cheering at school assemblies um, because. Uh, some people are sensitive to noise, or some people potentially could be sensitive to noise. They didn't even say whether there was anybody there who was sensitive to noise. It's just, it, it just, it's unbelievable. It's like suddenly everybody has to live in this padded society where you know nothing can actually touch you. It's like walking around, you know, day to day in one of those big inflatable sumo suit things. Well, I think the funny or thing about this is, is that it, on the face of it, it makes it seem like they're so concerned with not hurting other people. But once you start focusing so much on your own preciousness, you kind of ignore other people's feelings and sensitivities and their suffering. It just makes you more insulated and you don't pay attention to the world outside of you. So, yeah, like we said before, it's like a complete blocking out of reality. Mm -hmm. And I think it can become like even more Orwellian than that where it becomes like... uh, thought control since you can't say certain things basically they don't want you to even think those things mm. yeah it's a really bad sign it is interesting that the same article offers in the conclusion the author says that you know it seems that the tide is turning away from political correctness however and the author points to the presidential election campaigns as evidence he says that trump was campaigning as the anti-political correctness candidate it's just that yes it goes downhill for bad <laughs> yeah well pretty soon they're going to ban the debates because um people in the audience might get offended that their their chosen candidate has been insulted in some way <laughs> i think they should ban the debates for other reasons <laughs> yeah <it's just> me. <laughs> yeah well this is kind of speaks to one of our other topics which is uh emotional agility um and I think this is an interesting uh, topic. It's it's something that I've thought about uh, throughout my life um, because it's like there, there are different personality types in the world. You know, there's some people who are completely 100% stoic and can, like, take anything. And I have not historically been one of those people. I've, I've had a thin skin in the past. It's getting thicker. Um, but it usually, you know, will be like obsessed with like, you know, did I do the right thing or did I, did I piss that person off or what, you know, and it'll like kind of roll around in my head for a long time. But over through the, the struggle with that thin skin sort of uh, personality have learned emotional agility, you know, and a- allowing um, things to like kind of slide off. Um, and there, the, one of our articles here, I thought it was an interesting uh, point talking about how people are trying trying to be happy trying to force happiness hmm. um and they s- says psychologists are increasingly discovering that when it comes to happiness trying can backfire uh instead the paradoxical key to true happiness seems to be actually accepting unhappiness and not forcing yourself to feel how you don't yeah and i think mm-hmm. that's an interesting point because you can upset the uh the balance it's almost like you you uh you wrongly calibrate your your reading intru- instrument mm. because you're not able to uh, fully experience and understand 
negative feelings, you just kind of push them away in the striving for happiness. Hello? And it is, it is critical information that you don't want to push away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, emotions, we're like we're gifted with emotions as much as they might be seem like a burden in a lot of cases. Um, I think that it's one way that we can kind of read the environment. Um, you know, our, our emotional life is kind of a way of kind of giving us feedback about what we're experiencing and to try and impose something on that. It's almost like trying to impose it on one of your senses, like not seeing what's in front of you or not hearing what's being said. It's kind of like trying to block that out and being like, no, 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 I need to be happy all the time. Um, and I mean, there's the, the whole point too, that, that you really can only know happiness by understanding unhappiness. Um, you know, I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to necessarily define happiness as the absence of unhappiness, but I mean, I think, I think that's the, a lot of way that we actually calibrate that, that we do kind of have to um, experience the bad to understand the good. Yeah. I guess the way I think of it, it's like, um, for myself, I, I experience happiness uh, as fulfillment when something is fulfilled. And that usually, um, you know, sometimes it just comes to you by way of whatever chance. I don't know. And that's great when that happens. Um, but usually it's a result of striving and working at something. Mm -hmm. And through that mm -hmm. process, you have to feel pain. Uh, and then when you achieve that goal or you are fulfilled in some way through the work that you've done, then you feel happiness. And that, um, but you know, it's not a, it's not a binary thing. Like it just happens on its own. It, it, you know, you need the, the dark and the light both together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How else will you learn if you're just shoving any kind of negative emotion under the rug? Like if you keep shoving it down, eventually it's going to blow up or it's going to appear in some other kind of way that you don't expect. Like the, you know, getting hit over the head with a billboard, Yeah. for example. Yeah like of things that you won't face in your life, just keep coming back to haunt you. Yeah. That sense of fulfillment can be achieved by understanding the nature of your negative emotions, you know, not avoiding them, not avoiding them, not denying them, but understanding them, you know, and also not being and led around by the nose by your negative emotions, either just feeling them, acknowledging them, then, you know, questioning where they come from you know, what's really causing this and can you do something about it or, or, you know, is there nothing you can do? And if you can do something about it, then do it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of another article that I was reading to prepare this show. It was titled Ancient Stoic Wisdom to Help Achieve Greater Happiness. Mm -hmm. Something like that. If you, okay, you cannot do something about it. Uh, then why worry? Uh -huh. If you can do something about it, then why worry? <laughs> you know, why worry anyway? Like, <laughs> but that was yeah. a very great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's, I think that, that part of the problem, too, is that we're kind of sold this image of happiness, that uh, it's almost expected that, that to have a fulfilling life, you need to be happy all the time. I think pharmaceutical commercials are probably some of the worst <laughs> things for, for kind of selling yeah. this thing. Like, Anybody, you know, the Magic people bullets. in this, exactly, they're just like prancing through fields, there's balloons, there's puppy dogs, like it's, they're in bliss all mm -hmm. the time. And it's like, you, you kind of watch this and think, well, my life isn't like that. And it's, it's kind of selling this idea that, um, that there is this kind of achievable 24 hour happiness and that, uh, if you aren't at that point, then you're lacking in some way and that you need to, you need to be trying to achieve it. 
That's a very good example as an analogy because Big Pharma is offering the magic bullet and it says like you can achieve 24-hour happiness without side effects or dangers. Yeah. <laughs> but then when you look at it, it's really like the opposite is actually what applies to, to the reality, you know? Yeah. yeah you'll be bleeding from your eyes, but you'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> happy tears. <laughs> No, but if we all think back on our own lives, like the biggest times of growth and change came like due to being angry or ashamed or embarrassed or frustrated Mm -hmm. or just wanting to know the answers to something. It wasn't because we were happy and, you know, know, everything was rainbows and lollipops. (laughs) (laughs) It was because we were upset and we wanted to do something about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It seems yeah. like that whole yeah. new age reality too. all the books, how to get happy, be happy in three days, just mm-hmm. do this, just do that. Don't focus on the negative and, and it keeps coming around and uh, people who aren't happy all the time start questioning, oh, there's something wrong with me. Maybe I need this drug. Maybe I need mm. to buy this other book or go to this workshop. And it's just like a constant hamster wheel and happiness isn't following instead of just realizing that your perception of what happiness is could be very skewed. That's, I think, the key. In fact, in that article that uh, Gabby was talking about, they were talking about how um, happiness and how you gauge happiness and that sort of thing comes from actually your beliefs. And a lot of times when people are kind of chronically unhappy or depressed or something like that, they, they um, it's, it, become, it comes from um, kind of a, an, an poorly molded belief in some way. That uh, that that you, something you believe is, um, is is somehow you know interfering with the with the reality that's actually in front of you, and I remember there was a good example actually in a book uh, called The Narcissistic Family, where the author talked about a a, a client that uh, they, that um, she was seeing that um, uh, had seen in a movie this um, you know the main character kind of had this group of friends like this the, the it was a woman who had like several other women friends around her who they could say anything to who they just could like you know talk about absolutely every different problem that they were going through and she started to get really depressed because she didn't have that and she mm-hmm. thought that everybody else walking around had this kind of network of people that they could kind of count on for absolutely anything who would kind of give their life for them and you know when the psychiatrist basically said no most people don't have that that's not very common that was just something in a movie like suddenly it was incredibly freeing for this person because like <laughs> oh my god okay so i'm not actually missing this element nobody has that and you know nobody has few that. people do <laughs> very few people yeah that's a very good point perception is everything you know mm-hmm well, like an example that they gave in the articles, like uh, when a relationship breaks up and you think, oh, you're going to die, you'll never love again, you'll never meet anybody again, then you kind of ask your, or, or think to yourself, hey, wait a minute, what happened when I broke up with what's-his-face a few years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I got over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's where the media just really... Um, distorts people's perception you know all those movies happily ever after you know Mm -hmm. if a movie doesn't end with the the guy and the girl ending up happily ever after you oh it's so sad it's not you know that's not how reality is Mm -hmm. back to that precious snowflake you know Mm -hmm. children watching disney movies and then they get out in the real world and it's anything but disney yeah 
Yeah. Well, this uh, kind of leads into, you know, like forcing uh, states of mind or states of being, uh, the idea of smart drugs, uh, <laughs> which, you know, is, of course, in our title. Um, but uh, one of the articles that we had talked about before the show is the uh, the Adderall generation. Um, <laughs> and there's an interesting statistic in here that by 2013, 3.5 million children were on stimulants. And in many cases, uh, Ritalin had been replaced by Adderall, officially brought to market in 1996 as the new upgraded choice for ADHD, more effective and longer lasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, in, uh, let's see. Oh, that was actually uh, earlier than 2013. Sales of ADHD medication had totaled more than $2 billion. That was in 2005. Wow. Um which is now what eleven years ago. I mean, you know, it's. Uh, you know, I've never taken Adderall, um, but I have known some people who have, and they say that it's uh, uh, it's quite a thing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that it's actually it's it's along the lines of uh, crystal meth in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the personality altering, uh, uplifting effects that it has, and the the crash, the withdrawal uh, when you stop taking it. Um, the idea to me, now, it doesn't ever surprise me that adults would take drugs. People have been doing that for as long as drugs were available to take. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that uh, parents and society would approve uh, and that, that we would have a consensus around giving these to children uh, completely blows my mind. Yeah, It kind of comes down to that sort of authoritarian mindset, I think, because if you look at the chemical um, qualities of something like Adderall, I think it's uh, very similar to amphetamines that are a classified drug. Mm-hmm. Um, they are an illegal drug. Um, whereas what, what's happened is, is Big Pharma has essentially taken this classified drug, placed a name on it, and um, have marketed it as this other thing when in reality it's very similar Um, and simply because the authorities um, promote this people don't think to question um, and it is is accepted and then you and then you have the situation that we're in now where it is openly promoted to, to children you know you're essentially putting children on speed Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and that's yeah. that, that's accepted that's normal um it, i mean it makes no logical sense but when you understand that the majority of people have this authoritarian mindset and they don't think to question then it, you can start to sort of fit the pieces of the puzzle together and it's really quite absurd <laughs> it is and especially yeah. drugs like this uh we have now bipolar you know syndrome in children when it didn't exist before hmm. Yeah, yeah, especially considering the, the fact that there's been no research on the long-term effects of children or adults taking Adderall. And there's like severe withdrawal, like in the, in the article we were talking about, the lady, I think it was a lady who was mm-hmm. taking it. She had uh, nausea, chills, diarrhea, body aches, pain, seizures. I mean, she tried several times to stop taking it, like she would, you know, take her bottle and flush it down the toilet and then like a couple days later she'd be fiending for more and have to call up a friend and get a couple pills until she can get a new prescription i think a good addict yeah Mm -hmm. like a lot of people and it's interesting yeah students are taking it yeah 
that's what the article really pointed out, how it helped her with graduate school because she could focus intently and the whole other rest of the world disappeared and she could write her five-page essays in an evening. And then, you know, after years of doing it, it was like she started to lose all connection with the outside world. Mm-hmm. And lost her self-confidence because she thought that her results were all due to the drug, you know, not her yeah. own merit, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, of course, you know, for people, uh, it's um, it's legal, you know, and that's uh, not only legal but socially approved of. Uh, mm. And that's a, that's a big, I think, selling point for people. Because you know what else helps you focus? Cocaine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's essentially the same thing. Um, I know this ties in like to the sensitivity thing, uh, for me that we were talking about, um, because, uh, like for instance, I, I don't like to smoke close to other people who don't smoke tobacco, um, because, you know, it's not their choice and I don't want to blow a cloud of smoke in their face. I, I, I prefer to keep it to myself and not be, you know, a dick about it, um, so the same thing with kids. I really don't like smoking around kids just because I'd rather just keep that separate. Like I'll go somewhere else and have a cigarette. But the idea that I can't smoke like where, and this has happened to me, where a child can see me smoking <laughs> and they're like 30 feet away, like that that's unacceptable, but you can give them speed when I turn <laughs> around. You know, there's this double standard. Um, and there's this over sensitivity to things that we have created as being socially acceptable or not. Especially mm-hmm. when smoking, you know, enhances your cognitive abilities and Adderall and all these drugs just seems to destroy, you know, all your cognitive issues, you know. Yeah, yeah what's what's really interesting is that people, um, there's this one article that we read for the show and it's called Smart Drugs Come With Stupid Side Effects. It's basically talking about how you've got like this epidemic of um, university students who are um, actively seeking out these these medications that are typically used to treat ADHD. Um, so this is Adderall and Ritalin. And there's another one called Modafinil. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they genuinely believe that these drugs are going to help their cognitive performance and they're going to help them study um, and, and get good grades on their exams. But what's most interesting is that there was one study that was published um, in the journal PLOS One. And it actually... Um, it wanted to see the reaction times of someone when they had taken this drug. And they actually found that when, when these, um, these people had taken the drug, um, it actually slowed the subject's reaction times. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is being marketed as something that is beneficial for one's cognitive ability is, is actually doing the opposite. Hmm. It's just like old psychiatric drugs. There might be like a short honeymoon of one day or two, yeah. but afterwards, you know, it just goes downhill. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's like one of our chatters here posted. Um, uh, let's see. Nor does it make sense to give a child who is labeled essentially hyperactive speed, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, uh, intellectually doesn't make sense. Um, and what I, what it occurs to me that uh, we are messing with brain chemistry in such a dramatic way. That it's like, okay, it works, but how does it work? We don't really know. They're like, yeah, I don't know, but it, you know, it works. It calms them down. So what the hell? Let's sell you know five billion dollars worth of this mm. and um, make it grape flavored on top of it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you know, obviously there are some uh, 
they're, they're not just like, we have no idea how it works. There's some, uh, I'm, I'm a lay person when it comes to that kind of thing, like the actual biochemical reactions that happen. Um, so I'm sure that they understand to some extent why an amphetamine would calm down a person who is essentially hyperactive. But my common sense tells me that that is such a uh, distortion of their natural brain chemistry that it cannot but have negative effects down the line. Well, and the studies are showing that. I mean, you know, especially with children given ADHD drugs to help get better grades or to get their homework done. You know, an article recently came out about how um, research shows how ADH drugs fail to help children complete homework or get good grades. Mm -hmm. And in the article, they talk about how evidence indicates that children with uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder experience acute and prolonged academic impairment and underachievement, including marked difficulty with completing their homework. So Mm. these drugs are sold with your child's going to concentrate, they're going to get better grades and the studies come out showing that that's the opposite Mm. and then they have all these crazy side effects suicidality sleeplessness weight gain i mean yeah you're setting the child up you're basically programming the child that something is wrong with him you know something's wrong with you you have to take this pill so you can be smarter and do well in school because you're not good enough the way you are so here take it Right. And the sales pitch is working, too. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, the article is talking about how a lot of these schools are actually having to put up posters now mm-hmm. discouraging kids from taking these drugs in order to get better grades. Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, talking about the um, the uh, the penalties if you get caught doing this sort of thing and if you're selling your prescription drugs or if um, you're taking somebody else's prescription and all the consequences and stuff like that. Like, like this is actually a problem now. Like this is this is like the kids are no longer you know interested in maybe getting some weed, they want to get Adderall. And it's so and it's easy to easy. get them. Too. Exactly. All you just have to do, to... yeah, just go <laughs> in your doctor's office and say I can't concentrate on one thing at a time. My mind goes all over the place. Okay, here's your prescription. Yeah. It, it, exactly. You just have to like find your local psychiatrist in your area. And go with a bullet list of symptoms, and you will go out with a prescription. It's that easy. And there are ways like to deal with, with it, you know. <laughs> diet is a, is a huge one. Yeah. And imagine if they would just educate parents on diet. I mean, there's an article on SOD about how to stop the epidemic of attention deficit disorder. And basically, an effective alternative therapy is nutrition. Mm-hmm. said over 50% of children with ADHD crave sweets, often at the expense of nutritional food. And so 70% of children who crave sweets have much more control over their behavior when their food is low in sugar. You know, so you could get the kids off the junk food and start to help heal their brain in that way instead of just giving them a pill with their Fruit Loops in the morning. Yeah. And adults too. I think it's also sign- yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Copy. No, I was going to say that it's also a sign of the time. You know, we know that young people, they're very fond of, of their young food. It's very hard to make, you know, dietary changes if you don't have evident health issues or, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one. 
But it is also like for me, it's uh, very discouraging. I come from a generation that used vitamin B one timing to pull all nighters, like a chat uh, a chatter said, you know, the, uh, at school before tests. Hmm. And uh, these prescription drugs, it was like nobody will ever even contemplate them, even if they existed, you know. Mm-hmm. I think also when when you um, in response to what Tiff said a, a short while back. Um, when you label a child and you um, you give them these drugs and you tell them that they are in some way different from their social group, this can have some seriously um, debilitating effects on their um, on their development. You know, on their on their idea of themselves. Um, like when I when I was in in school, um, I, I know from my own experience that I had certain friends or I would know people in in my class. Um, who were labeled with ADHD or autism or, or whatever it was, and um, they were segregated from their social groups. Um, you know, they, they eventually became socially isolated, and I think that this isolation from the, that social network um, is, is more likely to increase those negative behaviors that supposedly um, initiated this diagnosis in the first place. Mm. You know, like if you're a kid and you're told that you're different and you don't fit in with your class, then you're more likely to play out in negative ways. You know, you may be more likely to, to throw a chair across the room because you feel isolated from your mm-hmm. peers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it starts this, this, this negative cycle in which this kid grows up and you know, they, they may eventually end up in prison because of uh, a misdiagnosis or because they haven't been approached um, in he- a, a holistic way. You know, a lot, a lot of the times when someone displays ADHD, it's usually because of a food intolerance or mm. because of their diet or because of their lifestyle in some way. You know, and, and instead of getting to, to the root cause of that, they, you know, they just give these drugs out and, and label these kids and it completely ruins their lives. Mm-hmm. Although the thing That's is, though, Elliot, at the way things are going, the kids who aren't on medication are the ones who are going to be socially isolated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. That's a depressing thought. Yeah. <laughs> I'm drug-free. <laughs> it's like, what? What? There's something wrong with you. <laughs> exactly. Well, that already happens with adults. Like, as soon as you go into a doctor's office, they, you know, expect you to be on a list of medications. And if you're not, like, did you forget to fill this part out? <laughs> like, no, I don't take any medicine. <laughs> What's yeah. wrong with you? Well, it occurs to me, too, that it ties, that ties in again to the um, this idea of, like, the hypersensitivity in our culture and how... Uh, hypocritical it is because we are not actually being legitimately sensitive towards people's natural personalities. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we tout sensitivity and we tout political correctness as, as the way to be. Um, but then instead of nurturing someone in a, in an actual effective and kind of tailored way, mm-hmm. uh, when they're in the education system, uh, instead they're given, um, you know, standardized tests and medication. And, yeah, you know, if we, were, if we were actually being legitimately sensitive towards people's different personalities, uh, learning methods and things like that, um, things would be a lot different. We wouldn't need the uh, Band-Aid measures and the magic pills. Hmm. Yeah, that's another problem I have with it, too, because it's just so phony and cookie cutter. It's like it's politically correct not to judge somebody, but 
you don't bother to get to know them and to, you know, like you said, Jonathan, tailor anything to their specific needs or abilities. You just, you just treat them like everyone else. But at the same time that if you treat everybody the same, that means that you're not getting to know anyone individually, mm-hmm. if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So smart drugs are dumb. <laughs> well, it makes me think too of the uh, the idea of um, like we were talking about diet and um, smart drugs. Of course, not just Adderall, but there's this whole world of uh, nootropics. Is that how it's pronounced? Or nootropics? Yeah. Nootropics. Yeah, a lot of the the self hackers and the health circles do this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> the biohackers. Yeah. Like what happened? Whatever happened to like. Like, uh, Erica, you were mentioning nutrition as a solution to this. I mean, proper nutrition will allow you uh, to focus and become smarter. But instead, we want a pill that we can take, you know, something to turn the switch on as opposed to actually working at it uh, and establishing a pattern that will last for many years. Uh, You know, I'd rather take a pill. And that makes me wonder, like, what is the end goal for a lot of these people? What do they want? Do they want to upload their brains into a computer? <laughs> like, are they looking to be super geniuses? But, you know, let's face it, not everybody has the same intellectual capacity. Not everybody can be a genius. I mean, there's not to say that you shouldn't try to better yourself and learn all that you can, but... I mean, some things you just can't do. Yeah, you have to just have yeah. facts alive. Yeah. <laughs> keep those. Well, that's like, well another that's thing is culture. exercise. You know, yeah. like uh, in the show description, you know, taking a hike, um, in this same article about the research on ADHD for kids and failing in schoolwork, there was an article published in Pediatrics that found that kids who engaged in regular physical activity had improvement in executive control, ability to maintain focus, working memory, and cognitive flexibility. And one of the things you see, at least in America with schools, is the first thing they cut is PE or recess, mm-hmm. or those things aren't considered important. But if you let kids get out and run around and act crazy and, you know, they're going to they're going to burn off some of that intense energy that is making them fidget and not sit still. And and it it also um, the exercise like triggers your brain to release dopamine and serotonin, which helps improve mood and boost your cognitive performance. And again, those things aren't offered. I mean, it's offered as like a, a fake. Oh, yeah, get out and run, but not as a real solution. And it really like, says a lot about how broken our school system is and how just terrible the things that we're taught in, in schools, that you have to drug yourself in order to be able to concentrate enough because, you know, if you face it, a lot of the stuff is just so boring. Like, people always hate a history class. The history can be very interesting if it's actual true history. Hmm. And, like, there's oh, other, yeah, oh, other subjects can soul. be. Yeah. Other subjects can be interesting, but there's just so watered down and, you know, riddled with lies. I mean, the fact you have to drug yourself to get through it says a lot. Yeah. Basically, you have to drug yourself to follow the program, and the whole system is just set up to create more suffering. And uh, and non-people, you know, people are not learning to regulate their emotions, to enjoy life, you know. It's just more suffering and more suffering. Yeah, well, the, the drugs, 
No, oh, go so, ahead, Elliot, please. I was, I was just going to say that I was so bored in school. Like, <laughs> school was so boring that <laughs> I didn't really pay attention in any of my lessons. And it, it was, was only when I got to about 18 or 19 that I actually started started um, being interested in the subjects that I was about, that I was meant to be taught in school. Like mm-hmm. science, you know, yeah. I, I, I never took an interest. Whereas, you know, <laughs> when I got to... I say a few years ago, you know, I, I found out I was massively interested in science. I never <laughs> knew that because they made it so boring in school. You know, the same as yeah. history. You know, like history, most of it is is skewed with lies, and it's it's made so boring that it's almost as if it's almost as if whoever creates the educational system wants it to be that way. You know, yeah. so that people don't necessarily look into it. Yeah, they're basically it is, it beating totally, the curiosity out of you. Mm-hmm. It totally is that way. I mean, I I don't want to go off, you know, like we could we could do a whole show on that. But the um, if you look into the history of the schooling, it's the modern schooling system, especially in America, and how it came over from uh, Prussia, uh, and the idea of um, you know levels of. Uh, schooling and how you would be uh, standardized it's it is actually designed and this is not like a crazy conspiracy theory this is you can look it up it's designed to create uh complacent workers and and social robots that's the purpose of it Uh, it's not designed to truly educate people um and the drugs i think in this sense are a dream come true for the masters of the schooling system it's perfect Mm -hmm. it completely plays into it um but yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely uh, uh, infuriating uh, when you when you really look into the history of, of the modern schooling system. It has nothing to do with education. I don't care how you dress it up; it is not true education. Um, it, you know, yeah. I don't so know. I, I could go off on that for a while. It's like they're <laughs> cramming and drugging themselves and pulling all nighters so they can fit better into a, a corrupt and broken yeah. system. That, well, the, I yeah. was thinking the same thing. I mean, what does it say that as the curic- curriculum gets dumber and dumber and, you know, comparing, you know, a lesson that, you know, a third grader got, um, you know, 50 years ago to now, it's like, it, you know, night and day or you go even higher than third grade, obviously. But it's like the, the curriculum gets dumber and dumber. And what is it what is it telling us that kids need to take drugs <laughs> to be able to get by on this <laughs> completely dumbed down curriculum? It's like, what is wrong with people? I mean, obviously, there's more going on here. Yeah, and it contributes to, like we were talking about, the lack of emotional agility. Um, if our listeners are interested and you want to go down a rabbit hole, look up uh, John Taylor Gatto, G-A-T-T-O. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the yeah. term artificially extended childhood. Mm-hmm. And artificially extended childhood is, is really interesting to me. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon. It's very unfortunate and depressing to look into. Um, but you can see, uh, and this happened to me too, you know, I'll, I'll be honest. I, you know, I didn't really grow up. I probably haven't even yet, but, uh, I didn't gain any, any sense of like social responsibility until I was in my late twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, if you look back into history, like Benjamin Franklin, for instance, whatever you want to say about his personality, he was, he was pretty, uh, acidic, uh, personality. However, he began building his fortune when he was 12 years old by, <laughs> By selling beer to the workers in the factories, he went to the factory owners, a 12-year-old kid, and said, hey, you're losing work when your workers go out to drink for lunch, so let me bring it in. 
and I can sell it to him right in the factory. And that was how he started making money. He was 12. Huh. Um, <clears throat> or like there was a captain of a naval ship uh, during the colonial era, uh, Daniel Farragut, who was, who was also 12 years old, and he was the captain of a ship. <laughs> <laughs> yes, wow. I, I really... <laughs> A, we can't have that lot. now. No, no. It, will really, be, it will not be politically correct. <laughs> no. But there's a lot of really interesting cases if you look back in history of people who were highly developed, extremely intelligent, resourceful, and productive in their like early teens. Mm-hmm. And that just, I mean, when, when that happens now, it goes viral on YouTube and we talk about the next Einstein. <laughs> it's normal <laughs> human behavior. Yeah. Or we drug them. Yeah, we're not used yeah, to seeing twelve-year-olds yeah. not playing video games. All yeah, day. we better get them. I remember, the I remember reading on SOT the school curriculum of the nineteenth century. This was years ago. It was a pretty good article, and it was impressive. Like, not even an English teacher nowadays will learn that much, you know, like you did in the a few centuries ago. You know. Mm. Wow. So we are, you know, by and large, society is a, is comprised of grown-up children, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it really is unfortunate um, because we, you know, it's not to say like I. So you you can also take it the wrong way, I think, and berate yourself for not having accomplished as much as you should have. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you can look and say that like, um, like just in the. Uh, Look in the '60s, not even that long ago. Like my father um, got his PhD when he was 24, mm. and wow. you know that was like already had gone through undergrad and the masters, and it was like um, that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, it, it does happen occasionally, but like I said, we consider it a statistical outlier at this point when it should be the norm. I mean, that it should even be younger than that that you should be a a functioning, productive member of, of society, a unique individual who contributes new ideas and, um, you know, things for your community uh, before you're 20 years old. Yeah, learn responsibility. And, and, yeah, and that is non-existent now. Yeah, with this helicopter parenting and prolonged schooling, kids aren't really given the freedom to explore what their real interests are and to focus on that almost exclusively. I mean, it's okay if you, you know, get excited about a certain topic and you study it for a while. I mean, that seems to be the natural order of things. It's not like you have to take uh, 13 years of a certain topic all throughout your childhood and you still come out and you don't know anything. But people, when they get out of university, will not, they will not have time, you know, to explore because they will have to pay their debts. Well, it's interesting you guys mentioned that because back to the Adderall Generation article, they were talking about um, an addiction specialist who helps people get off this Adderall. And he was saying that currently the age is between 24 and 40. And he noticed that overwhelmingly these Adderall uh, addicts were creative people who wanted to work in the arts or do something different, right, outside of the box. And many had chosen other safer paths, so they resigned themselves to be more practical, so to speak. And then Mm -hmm. they feel like in their 20s that they've missed out. And so when they take Adderall, it makes them feel good. So they don't focus on the fact that they feel like they sold out. Mm -hmm. And basically his conclusion was many people are using Adderall to mask a sense of disappointment in themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's like, again, just 
not more doing suffering. what's in, yeah more suffering but also not letting the child like tiffany was saying find what stimulates them and 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 sparks their creativity but just to drug that and numb that and well you have so got um, you know, sorry erica oh go on oh no it was um i was just going to say that you have got certain schooling systems and um, that are still um available to children i think you you have to pay um but there's one in the uk and i think it's uh, in the rest of europe as well it's a, a schooling system it's called a steiner school and so um the the way that they educate the children is vastly different from the ordinary education system in that a child will um not necessarily have to study um hard sciences or anything like that until they get to the age of sort of like six or seven and um from what i understand uh, it, it, the, the system is based on um teaching the children to get in touch with their creative intuition um it's 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 to allow them you know like they do a lot of work with um colors and um you know, creative activities and, and social bonding. And so a lot of it is based upon their emotional development. And then the idea is, is that when they get to sort of, you know, six or seven years old, they've been allowed to explore all of those avenues. And then that, at that point, they are um, in a much better position to um, study the, the sort of hard subjects, as you would call them. And um, and they actually have much better results. So it seems that as a child, when you're very young, you know, instead of sticking a child when they're three or four years old in front of, you know, in a classroom, being told what is what, um, it, it, you know, it, it's it's highly beneficial for a child to, 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 to essentially explore the world, explore social connection, bonding with others um their 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 creativity and and you know this i mean there's been some amazing results in these other ways of schooling the children and you know it's sad to see that our education system is so um how could you describe it um, broken it's so bad <laughs> It yeah. ties into the it ties into the cultural aspect too. Like you were saying, how uh, experiencing all the different aspects and possibilities in life before you have a chance to begin developing what your own interest is um, reminds me of another story from like the colonial era. I think it was Benjamin Franklin, but it might have been somebody else. So don't quote me on who it was. But the story was that this person their their parents would bring in a different person every night from the street for dinner. Mm. They would just go out and say, "Hey, come on in." You know, like we're having dinner. Do you want to have some? And through that process, um, <clears throat> the subject of the story was able to learn new uh, ideas and new concepts mm. and various things from the world around them um, by interacting with many, many, many different people in an intimate home kind of setting. And could you imagine anybody doing that now? You know, huh. it'd be like people, no. people are so afraid of their neighbors without even seeing them. The idea of like just going on the street and being like, hey, come in for dinner is like completely foreign. Um, and so we cut ourselves off from being able to experience the world, uh, the wider world. Um, it, you know, now we're doing it on Facebook, which is not real experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we're doing it as adults. I mean, as, as forget about children. As children, you have no 
again, I'm not trying to blanket statement, but by and large, no meaningful interaction with the uh, the intricate um, kind of web of, of culture and society that exists out there. Mm. Uh, the people who are doing this with their kids are considered uh, exceptional, which is really sad. Yeah. So. Well, I think that people yeah. can notice that maybe their brains aren't functioning as well as they ought to, mm. and they feel a little bad about it. So they try to do these brain games yeah. <laughs> or use an app yeah. <laughs> to make up for their poor schooling and education. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out they don't work. And <laughs> Shocking. By their fruits, you shall know them. <laughs> You get frustrated when you can't figure out the brain games to take an Adderall. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there, there, we've had a couple of articles up on SOD actually about this, that the, the brain games, um, you know, I know luminosity is one of them. There's a couple of other ones as well. And the idea is that, you know, you're doing these kind of exercises on the app that kind of increase your cognitive ability. Like they, they challenge you in some way. Um, but what they found is that all it really does is make you better at the game, that those <laughs> skills aren't really translatable <laughs> to other things. So you Did end they up have sitting to make there. A study to well, figure out this. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess when I first heard about these brain games, I was kind of like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. You know, by doing something, you know, you hear about people doing crossword puzzles and it kind of makes them smarter in some way. And like, I, I, I can see why it would be an enticing idea. But, um, yeah, apparently, according to these studies, they, the, the, what you're learning in these brain games is to be better at the game. And that um, right. there's actually even one person quoted, um, one scientist who said, it's really important, actually, for these brain games to actually work is that they're not fun. Because if they're fun, that means that they aren't challenging enough. And that um, you're actually, it's too easy. So, um, yeah. the, the, if it, you know, the idea of actually playing a game that is not fun is you know probably counterintuitive to a lot of people. They actually made a study with more than eight thousand people between eighteen and sixteen years old. Uh, it was done by the BBC, and uh, some of those who played online brain games were compared against those who didn't. But you know, who surfed the internet randomly and you know just uh, searching for general information in general for questions. And they did an IQ test before and after the experiment. And apparently, those who did not do the brain training, um, some of them actually did better, you know. <laughs> that there was no difference, basically. <laughs> you can play the game or just surf the internet and you'll be just the same. That reminds me of, like, did you guys ever, did you guys ever play uh, Zelda on the Nintendo NES? Mm. Yes. That was hard. That was a hard, <laughs> frustrating game. I get so angry. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I think so like, might, might even be a better learning tool than some of their brain game apps. <laughs> Maybe. I think yeah. I think this sort of stuff comes down to your intention uh, behind why you're why you're doing it. I mean, like they they state that these you know these these games are meant to help your brain work, and so if people go at that with the intention of their brain. You know, increasing brain function. Um, you know, like as you as you've just said, the studies show that it, it doesn't necessarily do that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with playing a game every now and again. You know, like mm -hmm. we we all like to dissociate in certain ways, and that's okay. 
But <laughs> if you really want your brain to work better, then why don't you just, you know, read a book? The brain function. I mean, there was a, an article up on SOT before, and I think it was talking about how um, by reading, um, you know, um, classical literature or by reading something um, that is scientific in nature, it actually increases your brain function. It creates mm-hmm. new neural pathways and it, it strengthens the ones that are already there. Um, so essentially, yeah. if you want if you want your, your brain to work better, don't play a game, you know? Just mm-hmm. do something that increases your brain function. <laughs> yeah, go out and do something well, new. Me- you know, get a hobby, learn a new language, learn to play an instrument, do something. Yes. I mean, don't sit there... I don't. I've never even seen one of these brain games. So I don't know what they do, but I but mean, apparently people are very hooked because consumers spent three hundred twenty-two million dollars just <laughs> in two thousand thirteen on digital brain games. Hmm. Man, I need, <laughs> to, need to make a brain game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the wrong business. Does one that. Do one that works. I was gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> it ties in, I think, to the uh, the schooling system that we were talking about. And that, like Elliot, you said, you know, read a book. It's it's like the idea of self education uh, is is uh, is dying, mm-hmm. uh, and it's so sad because I mean, if you have the proper motivation and the willingness to hurt your brain and to experience uh, new things that make you feel uncomfortable. Um, that's what the public library system is for. You know, that's what like, and (laughs) this is so infuriating to me that the, the, the contradiction of the fact that we have now everybody in their pocket has this like Star Trek level device where you can access (laughs) all of the information in the world (laughs) in a second. And yet people are getting dumber. So, uh, yeah, what was that <laughs> meme? You're you're swimming in knowledge and drowning in ignorance. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we have such unparalleled access to information now, like we've never ever had before, and yet, for some crazy reason, people are not using it. Um, we we don't, at this point with the access of information that we have available to every pretty much every person, uh, not counting you know countries or areas where they may not have that kind of technological access. You don't even need. Uh, college you don't need a university education i mean you need interaction with people yes Mm -hmm. but you don't need that that schooling framework in order to educate yourself it's completely possible to do on your own um and you know not just like the internet made this possible this was possible since books had been printed yeah you know and possible even before books were printed but what i'm saying is like our access keeps going up and up and up and yet our level of motivation and self-determination keeps going down and down and it's really frustrating. I mean, it's like that there's a website called Let Me Google That For You, which people <laughs> do a lot. Like, as a joke. <laughs> like um, anyway, yeah, that's it. I, I agree with Elliot what you said. Like, educate yourself, get out, do some research, find the information. If mm-hmm. you can't find it on the internet, then go to a, go to a library and look it up. Like, practice that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how many, you know, there are kids who have probably never even been to a library, which is such a distressing idea. Well, another related uh, article we were looking at about increasing your brain power was actually by um, practicing uh, dance or music. And they actually found that that um, increases brain potential as well. 
So yeah, does it have to be internet. formalized dance, or can you just boogie around your kitchen? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know if disco would it's be tap dancing. <laughs> I think they I were thought it was at- interesting because it showed a few differences. Like people who danced, they had more connectivity between the brain hemispheres, mm-hmm. but those who practice a musical instrument, instead of more connectivity, there was like a certain strength. In connectivity, hmm. in certain pathways. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess it's not just reading books what? and stuff like that, but like if you actually want to increase brain power, it's kind of like you need a, a kind of more holistic, all-over education. So it needs to involve movement in some way. It needs to involve creativity. All these things are yeah. very, uh, very important. It's not just like you know, plunking yourself on the couch with a book. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, but actually getting out there and, and moving and kind of using your body and, and, you know, being creative, those sorts of things are very important for, you know, increasing your brain power as well. That's what they used to do before. It reminds me like a few centuries ago, people get together and dance all this coordinated dance mm-hmm. in a classical music mm-hmm. and how people spend like time reading and drawing and playing musical instruments and, you know, and teaching each and other the oral stuff. tradition of sharing stories and memorizing, you know, uh, poems. And mm-hmm. Well, it's like, you know, yeah, the idea of being a well-rounded person, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're losing that too. Uh, you know, you look back to um, when people were like that they were uh, the original intent of sport. You know, I'm not talking about like football, but I mean like sport in general was to have social interaction, uh, exercise, um, learn strategic thinking and uh, movement and and also creative thinking um, and pair that all together. Uh, And, you know, the idea that uh, now we have like nerds and geniuses on one side and athletes on the other, I think (laughs) it's really unfortunate too. Too much together. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I guess let's see what what else do we have here on our docket for today. We want to talk about the glyphosate glycine connection. I thought that was uh, very interesting. Yes, because uh, the glycine, you know, glycine supplement. It's our one of our favorite supplements, mm. and basically just promotes healthy collagen, bones, you know, good immune, digestive, and brain system. You know. Uh, it enhances the production of growth hormone for healing and builds up muscles. It's just great thing. Mm-hmm. And guess what? <laughs> <laughs> it's contaminated with glyphosate. <laughs> <laughs> As I understand it, it's, it hacks it, you know, the glyphosate, you know, mm-hmm. just basically yeah. hacks the glycine, you know. Well, yeah, so glyphosate is basically, um, it is, they call it, it's, it's a synthetic amino acid. Okay, so it, it's, it's an analog for glycine in the body. So glycine is the natural amino acid that the body uses for collagen and everything that Gabby said. What glyphosate does is it basically mimics the action of glycine. So when you ingest glyphosate, what it does is it binds to or it, fulfills the function of glycine but it 
technically doesn't fulfill the function of glycine because <laughs> it's not glycine. So <laughs> what it does is it completely destroys your whole collagen network <laughs> in your body. And when you understand collagen, collagen is the most abundant protein in the body. It, I mean, like, the, the, the numbers outweigh anything else. You're pretty much a, a ball of collagen and water, <laughs> technically. <laughs> and so if you've got something like glyphosate that takes over and replaces the, the, the glycine in the collagen, you can see that this is going to cause serious, serious issues in the whole integrity system. And we have the epidemic of back problems, sciatica, but even other diseases like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, mm. kidney problems, autoimmune issues, you name it. It's present in the environment, in people. Now, is this an across-the-board contamination? Uh, is this kind of like glyphosate is just everywhere now? Yep. Y- yep. I to say, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's especially concentrated in the food chain because if the plants are sprayed with glyphosate and the plants are fed to the animals and most people eat, you know, industrial uh, uh, animals raised on CAFOs that they call them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the glyphosate gets into all of their collagen. And then if we think we're doing a good thing by eating bone broth and basically according <laughs> to this author, like we're just eating a big old bowl of glyphosate evil tricksters malfunctioning proteins just this week uh, we published and saw an article titled damning new report shows the entire global ecosystem contaminated by glyphosate yeah Jesus yeah so it it seems like now the uh, the thing to do is basically what manage your health the best you can. I mean, there's more and more things now in our environment that we just can't get away from. I think taking glycine, it's a good option, you know, just Mm -hmm. like try to reverse the balance of some sort, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like we said at the beginning of the show, can you do something about it? If you can't, then, you know, don't worry don't about worry. it. <laughs> and if you can't, then there's know. no reason to worry about it. But I think really, like, all we can do is the best that we can. If you can get, like, organically raised, no antibiotics, no GMO-fed animals, then do it. Yeah. And if you can't, yeah. take steps to detoxify yourself and combat the damage. The sauna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But this fine, this like kind of fine tuning of the diet that we talk about on this show is is uh, I think not necessarily very common. I think most people are in a in a in a state where they need to at first basically just get off of processed foods mm-hmm. and like reduce sugar and like it would just go with those two things first, you know, mm-hmm. and then work on the other things afterwards. Um, a lot of people are in a place to fine tune their diet. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it is kind of one of those situations where, like Tiff said, you just have to do the best you can. And, you know, in this situation, it's like, you know, if you can you do anything about it? Well, you can. (laughs) I mean, in this situation, you can. So you better do something about it. Yeah. Because sitting around worrying about it isn't really going to help anything. So do something about it. Yeah. I mean, despite the fact that, you know, it it is depressing and it's easy to get overwhelmed and just kind of uh, think, why bother? Um, I I think that... uh, 
taking actionable steps is probably the the most important thing that you can do. Uh, yes, and remember, the control system doesn't want you to do that. They mm-hmm. want you to give up, to you know, deny. You can do something about it. Just do it. Yeah. Can we drink Let's- eight glasses of water a day? <laughs> I'm sure you can. To help us. <laughs> I have to be honest. I've never been able to drink eight, eight glasses of water per day. Am I damned? Nope. No. <laughs> it turns out that you're not. There Especially considering new... that glyphosate might be in that water. Well, <laughs> not aware undoubtedly, of it. yeah. No, it turns out a new study actually found that the brain actually inhibits your swallowing response when you've had enough water, when you've had sufficient water. So forcing down more water because some marketing company for a bottled water company has, has told you that you need to drink eight glasses of water a day, it turns out that you are actually having to override your body's own uh, systems to be able to actually achieve that. Now, that's not to say that nobody needs eight glasses of water a day. There may be people who do, particularly people who are doing a lot of exercise or they're, they're sweating a lot. I mean, obviously, there are situations where you might actually need that much. But the idea that there is an across-the-board requirement that everybody must get eight glasses of water seems to be mostly bunk. Yeah. And they've never been uh, able to find any benefits for weight loss or headaches. uh, Well, they say if you have a history of kidney stones, then maybe drinking more water is good for you. But if you're drinking a lot of water day in and day out, it actually puts a lot of strain on your kidneys, so you should just basically drink according to your thirst and all yes. the other, you know, whacked out benefits that they claim that water does, like reducing appetite. It really hasn't been proven. There's no evidence. And people so who exactly force themselves, people who force themselves to drink a lot of water, they actually create an imbalance in the electrolytes, which can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean we're we're not talking about staying properly hydrated, right? I mean, if you're thirsty, you should drink water. Yeah, absolutely. Listen listen to your body. Um, but drink water and not like a soda or a juice, yeah. you know, <laughs> something like that. I, I would add one thing to that. Um, and I think uh, it that is dependent on the environment in which mm-hmm. someone is placed. Um, and the reason for that is because um, electromagnetic frequencies... Uh, such as Wi-Fi. If you live in an area where you can turn your Wi-Fi on on your phone and you have 13 different Wi-Fi signals that you can connect to, then essentially what that electromagnetic frequency does to the body is it stops it from being able to utilize the water. And so in that case, I would say that if you live in an environment where there is more EMF, um, you are naturally going to be more dehydrated and I would also say that that doesn't necessarily mean that you will feel thirsty. It's just um, dehydrated on a, on a cellular level. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you're in an environment where there is um, lots of EMF or lots of fluorescent lighting, then I would say that you should probably increase your uptake in water. But if you live in an environment that um, that is, is not particularly bad, then you probably don't need to drink as much water as they say. Uh, again, it's individual and it's dependent on the environment, I think, and the quality of the water as well. Because if you're drinking fluoridated water, that actually acts to dehydrate the cell also. Um, so really, you want to be drinking some sort of um, filtered water, either uh, out of the spring or 
um, a distilled distiller um, or reverse osmosis or something like that. As long as it's good quality water, then you probably don't need to drink that much. And if you can get rid of the Wi-Fi and remove yourself from that situation, that would be even better. Because if oh, yeah. it's an issue of your cells not being able to utilize the water, if you keep dumping water in there, I mean, it doesn't matter how much water you get, if your cells still can't use it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, what else do we have here? Um, did you guys want to talk about uh, Kratom at all? Kratom. 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 <laughs> like kryptonite? <laughs> What's <Yeah, right>. that? <laughs> or creepy clowns? <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about the creepy clowns. The creepy clowns. And why do so many people hate clowns? They've done studies. Like they did a study in a UK children's hospital where most of the kids didn't want clowns around because they found them creepy and they didn't like them. It wasn't most of the kids. It was all of the kids. All of the kids? Every single one of them. <laughs> Just look at this clown of Stephen King's clown. Is he totally creepy? Yeah. Well, there are some questionnaires, I guess, for people who are scared of clowns, and it's called coolrophobia, which is the fear of clowns. <laughs> and so they yes. asked these adults, like, what is it about clowns that creep you out? And they... Was the people said that they were unsettled by the face paint on a clown and the face paint makes it makes it hard for people to be able to read the emotions that the clown has and they didn't like the clown's ability to engage in subversive or manic behaviors without consequence so what does that sound like <laughs> yeah <laughs> sounds like deep down they're afraid of psychopaths yeah and that's what clowns actually <laughs> represent <laughs> Wow, I didn't look. I didn't. I never looked at it that way before, but that's totally true. Yeah. 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 It's funny though. I mean, I, I, I've always wondered. Like, I, was there any point in history when people actually did consider clowns funny? Because I've always well, just found true. them kind of either annoying or yeah. creepy. Like, I've never actually kind of been like, "Oh, good clowns. This is this is going to be funny." <laughs> like, I've never really thought that. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe back in the vaudeville days or something like that, <laughs> when like a clown would come on stage and people would be like, "All right, some comedy." But for the most but part, I've it, always just thought it was rather lame. It is an extension of that. There's, there's like a, there's a school of uh, comedic acting, uh, you know, called clowning, which is, it's what you would think it is. It's like clowning around, being kind of like a prankster, um, being kind of goofy, uh, slapstick violence, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, I like that. Uh, <laughs> you can actually go there. There's actually clown schools that like. Yeah. Um, uh, I have an acquaintance, uh, I don't know him well, but a guy uh, here who, who went to a clown school. Um, and he's incredibly entertaining, but he does like juggling and magic tricks and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, whole, uh, it's a whole area of, of, uh, of acting that you can study. So I think you're right, it came out of like the, the vaudeville area mm. or era. Um, mm. and maybe as a result of like the court jester um, kind of character. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I want, I actually wonder the, the the couple of articles that we looked at on clowns. Um, you know, this has been in the news a lot lately because there's been all these creepy clown sightings, clowns with weapons trying to lure children into forests and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I think uh, I think maybe the 
clown thing might have taken a turn for the worse after the whole uh, John Gacy. Yeah, John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy thing. Serial yeah. killer. Yeah, serial killer who was an avid clown and... When, I think he actually did go to clown school and like, was yeah, a member he, of some kind of clown association. He and, was a clown at kids' parties, yeah. and he killed, like, 33 young men? Yeah. yeah. So I think maybe that might have embedded itself in the uh, collective unconscious, and now people are just like, clowns, no, that's bad. Yeah, like uh, yeah. Stephen King's book, It, and yeah. Poltergeist, it. where the clown attacked the kid and dragged him under the bed. Yeah, maybe those things all just ruined clowns. Yeah. I mean, it was incredibly popular. That was one of my initiations into the world of scary movies, and mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's still terrifying. The book is worse. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, true. I've never, I've, I've never read the book. I, I really had no intention to. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll respect to, uh, to Stephen King, of course, but still. Yeah. Yeah, so what kind of timely with all this clown hysteria that's going on now but i was reading like this is not the first time that there's been clown hysteria apparently like in 1981 it started like where was it uh in massachusetts uh, brookline massachusetts then it spread to boston and the outlying areas and then rhode island then it moved to pittsburgh kansas city nebraska and colorado so people were freaking out about clowns then, too. Well, apparently even in France, there was a whole yeah. outbreak of clown hysteria. I think it was in the early 2000s. Mm. And um, it, it ended up like f- people were forming like clown vigilante groups to go out and like, <laughs> take down the clown. <laughs> Stuff them all back into the, into the little car. Yeah. <laughs> all 2,000 of them. <laughs> I just I don't no, understand where it comes from though. It's just it's such a bizarre thing. Like all of a sudden there's all these clown sightings. Uh-huh. Like I don't know. You know strange. what's what's weird about it? It just occurred to me that I wonder if this is a symptom of like we it's uh, the viral thing, the the, mm-hmm. the viral meme thing. Like there's you can almost pick anything and make it into some sort of viral hysteria. Like you know mm-hmm. it was clowns, and then it was like the you know I guess. Pick uh, you know any other like disease scare like Ebola like what happened to Ebola like now apparently that's just not happening anymore. Um, Nothing happened. Yeah, I know, guess the, it's much easier to spread the viral meme if you're not paying attention, if you're easily mm-hmm. manipulated, and so forth. I think that every yeah. once in a while it seems like people need some kind of outlet to express their hysteria. Because, huh. like, even before, like, the Internet, like, back in colonial times where there would be these young girls who would have these fits, all of them in the same village. I don't know exactly what the underlying cause of it was, but it just seems like people have this need or, yeah, a need, I would say, to, like, go off hmm. yeah, a little bit. Yeah, the mess. Yeah. Mass hysteria, yeah. epidemic of sorts. Mass clowning around. <laughs> That's how the theatrical representations were born, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of like to channel all that energy. Mm. Maybe, maybe we could start our own viral hysteria, but relate it to something like GMOs. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to get you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With that creepy smile and those bulging eyes, you never know what's going to happen next. On that cob of corn. 
<laughs> well, uh, I think we're coming up on our time. Do you guys want to go to- for today? Sure. Sounds cool. good. All right. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and this week I would like to share with you an episode of The Con of Shame by Dr. Andy Rourke, where he talks about the treatment of hotspots. If you have a dog, it is possible that you already had to deal with a hotspot before, or many spots. Well, now you'll know what to do. Here it is, and have a great weekend. So what are you talking about? Moist dermatitis. Ew, don't call it that. It's a hot spot. Don't ever call it the other thing again. Oh, hey, today on The Cone, we are going to talk about what to do if you find one of those small patches of raw, yucky, infected skin that we call hot spots on your dog. Let's get into it. And now, the vet who gets really excited when someone new comes to visit, Dr. Andy Rourke. So, how do we handle a hot spot? Call the IT guy. Tell all your friends to meet you there for happy hour. (laughs) No, and no. The first thing to do in these cases is talk to your vet. Hot spots have a nasty and frequent habit of causing deep skin infections, and they also spread really fast. I can't tell you how many times people have brought me their dog for a tiny little hot spot, and they had no idea that there was a massive area of infection hidden underneath the hair coat. Sometimes horrible things lurk beneath the surface, like that movie Tremors. That said, there are some things you can do at home to help the healing process. Just remember that these things can spread fast. They can also be painful. We always want to make sure you're not hurting your buddy and that you are safe and you're not going to get bitten. Get the hair out of there. Carefully clip the area around the hot spot. This stops the hair from getting down in there and getting covered in pus and trapping infection against the skin. It also opens the area up so it can dry out and heal faster. Ugh, I hate that word. What word? Pus? Yeah, yes! I hate it more than moist. If you're not comfortable clipping the hair and you think you might cut your dog, you're going to need to get professional help. We do not want to make this worse by adding a nasty cut to the situation. Clean the area. You can just use a warm washcloth and soap, or if you have an antiseptic spray or uh, shampoo from your vet, then use that instead. Just get the area clean and then pat it dry. Depending on the cause, size, and severity of the hotspot, your vet may prescribe oral medications like antibiotics or sprays or ointments or shampoos. Perhaps use them. Your vet may recommend wound healing solutions or hydrocortisone sprays or creams that are available over the counter, but you don't want to start using this stuff without their guidance. Prevent further damage. Don't let your dog lick, bite, or scratch at the affected area. It just makes things worse. If you have an Elizabethan collar, now is the time to use it. Watch closely. 
many of these cases are going to require a trip into the veterinarian for topical or oral antibiotics. If you are trying to manage a hotspot at home and it is getting worse, spreading, or generally not healing as fast as you would like, don't wait. Go ahead and get into the vet before this becomes a serious problem that is difficult to manage. We do not want this to become a terrifying event like that movie Tremors. And that is our show. Thank you so much for watching. Please help us to help other pet owners by liking, commenting, and sharing this video so that it gets seen. Until next time, let's be the people that our pets deserve. So free of hotspots. <laughs> <laughs> That was interesting. Thank you, Zoya. Yeah. Um, I've I've never come across that that issue with my dog, but she has a short hair, so I've never heard of a hot Maybe spot. Maybe more. Yeah. It sounds awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds more awful than right calling from... calling it an infection. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, let's go right from uh, moist infected dermatitis to our recipe for today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is a uh, a paleo uh, Asian chicken recipe. Mm. Um, so you may uh, kind of add ingredients uh, to your liking but uh, what you want is uh, one bunch of uh, scallions and uh, trimmed and cut into thirds uh, like green onions um, two garlic cloves uh, eight slices the size peeled and then cut about to the size of a quarter uh, you can use more more ginger to your liking I, I like lots of ginger so I would just basically cut up like a whole hand of ginger for this um, three tablespoons of apple cider vinegar, three tablespoons of the fat of your choice, whether it be like olive oil, baking grease, lard, whatever you want to do. Um, so three tablespoons of that. Uh, one tablespoon of coconut aminos. Now this is where may pe people may choose to use or not use those. Um, coconut aminos are kind of like the safe alternative to soy sauce. Um, but uh, I know that some people have an issue with it because it can mimic uh, MSG, although it does not actually contain MSG. So that's kind of a gray area. Um, so just to point that out. Um, personally, I've used them and have never really had a, a problem with it or, or felt, you know, any like inflammation from that. Um, doesn't happen. Um, so and then uh, two uh, teaspoons of uh, stevia or xylitol, whatever your intended sweetener is. Um, teaspoons of kosher salt, freshly ground pepper uh, to taste, and four pounds of chicken thighs. Um, so now essentially what you do is, now this th thighs with the skin on and bone in, chicken thighs, um, take all of the other ingredients, it's not complicated at all, throw them all into a blender and puree, and basically turn it into a marinade.
um, and then put all of the uh, chicken thighs into a, a sealed bag, the marinade, uh, let it sit uh, for two hours, uh, let it get in there, um, take them out, put them onto a pan with like parchment paper or something, and then take the rest of the marinade from the bag and kind of brush it over and, and then bake at 400 degrees for 30 minutes. And that's it. Sounds good. Yum. Yeah, it's pretty tasty. Nice. Yummy. So the ginger really makes it pop. That's why I, I like to use a lot of ginger. Um, mm. So, but I encourage people to play around with that. Uh, I have also had fun with uh, slicing ginger into little pieces and then basically frying that in like lard or bacon grease with some garlic and green onions. And then you can like, you know, cut up a chicken breast or boneless thighs or whatever all together and make sort of like a melange, like a, I guess like pad thai, but it's not really, it's not really pad thai, um, but a sort of similar dish. Um, but yeah, have fun with that. Sounds good. Yum. Great. All right. Well, that is our show for today. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening and for participating in our chat. Um, hope that you guys all have a great weekend. Be sure to tune into the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern Time, or if you are not in the Eastern Time Zone, go to radio.sot.net, uh, and the time, the airtime will be there uh, in your local time zone. Uh, I'll say adieu, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Take good care. Bye-bye. <laughs>